O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. O Lord, we pray that you would gather with us, that you would come and give your spirit and open our eyes, enable our hearts and our minds to understand and to hear and to believe your word. We pray you would do this, Lord, for your own glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today, as Jeff mentioned moments ago, as you heard him say, today is acknowledged by many as what's called Sanctity of Human Life Day. On January 22nd, 1973, in the case of Roe versus Wade, the United States Supreme Court decided that individual right to privacy extends to an individual's right to terminate a pregnancy. And so began what I think, and and I surely hope that you think as well, is one of the most life-threatening movements in the history of the human race. Eleven years later, President Ronald Reagan designated the third Sunday of January to be National Sanctity of Human Life Day. And subsequent presidents since then who oppose abortion have made the same designation. And scores of people, scores of people hail that designation of this day as 
an indication of all that's good and right and just in our free society. On the other hand, scores of people denounce it as regressive and even an oppressive effort to control individual rights. One year before he made that designation, President Reagan did something else which was even more controversial. President Reagan, with very vocal opposition from, let's be honest, Christ-professing politicians, and even with his own sense of conflict because of the potential cost of such a move, signed into law as a federal holiday, Dr. Martin Luther King Day, to be observed on the third Monday of January, that would be tomorrow, relative to the birth of Dr. King on January 15. And so began what I believe, and I hope that you believe as well, is one of the most life-healing movements, at least within this country, surely. Scores of people hail it as a celebration of one of the great, truly great leaders of the modern day. And, of course, others denounce it as completely unworthy of recognition. Now, since Roe v. Wade in 1973... Almost 53 million, 53 million lives have been taken by abortion, and that's in this country alone. Now, for many of us, that's cause for despair. It's reason for despair as we think of it, and it's reason for motivation for more protection for those who can't protect themselves. But for many, it's cause for indifference, to be honest. And it's caused to motivate them for more protection for their own freedoms. Now, since Dr. King's death in 1968, many would surely say that if he could come back today and take a look and survey the United States to see what's going on, that he would surely see really good, even great progress in race relations in our country. And yet, many would not say that. Many would say that he would be discouraged at what he sees should he see it? As a country, we are a divided people. There's just no way around that. We love what we love, and we don't understand others who don't. Right? But beyond any human designation for the day, today is, and it always is, above and beyond anything we might say of it, the Lord's Day. And because of that, the prevailing question for us is, What does God love? Now, he leaves no doubt. He leaves no doubt in Scripture as to the fact that he is a life-loving God. As the creator of all things, the protector and preserver of it all, he knows all of life. This is one of David's most well-known psalms. Everyone is familiar with this psalm to some degree or another, many have memorized it and put it in their own heart, and that's a wonderful thing. It is a comforting psalm and a discomforting one all at once. O oh Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise. You know my thoughts. You know, you've searched out my path. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before I speak, you know the words. You're behind me. You're before me. Your hand is upon me. I can't even begin to comprehend how you can have this knowledge of me, O Lord. 
Now, you can already tell this is a controversial topic, isn't it? In fact, it's two controversial topics in our country and in our age. And it's a topic which we as Christians tend to shy away from. And in particular, in our denomination, in our tradition, we tend to kind of say, well, you know, let's, let's don't bring that into the pulpit. Let's don't bring that into church. Those are controversial and, and difficult subjects. But we have to. We have to ask how we should live in light of what we believe of the gospel. And if you need any theological justification for it, here's a controversial truth for you. I'm kidding. We were all made in God's image. We exist in the very image of God, meaning that we're distinct from the animals, meaning that human life is sanctified. It is set apart as unique and distinct from the rest of creation. It's how God made human beings. And this fact of our living and being in His very image bears on the question of human dignity regardless of your racial makeup or of your birth status. And so we have to talk about this. It means that we share some of God's attributes. That's what it means to be in His image. We share some of His attributes. His goodness, His justice, His love and His mercy and His knowledge. All of those are attributes of God which we share in. In fact, we share in them from the moment of conception. God is developing those attributes in us as human beings as bearers of His image. We are His image, but we're not Him. We're not God. You know, so we may have goodness about us to varying degrees, but God's goodness is infinite. We may have a sense of justice, of, of right and wrong about how things ought to be, but God's justice is perfect. And we may have some knowledge We may have some understanding about things, and we may know some facts, some more than others. But God's knowledge is infinite. He's omniscient, is what this psalmist, of course, is after. God knows you to the very depths of your soul and even beyond it. David has praise for God in this fact, doesn't he? He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. Only you, O Lord, can have such knowledge. David is confessing his belief about God, and that's an an element of worship. That's an element of our praise to God is our confessing to him and before him what we believe and recognize is true about him. But God's omniscience does more than draw praise. It actually poses a threat, doesn't it? David recognizes that here, and I think we all must see it. Because God sees all that you do. He hears every word that you speak, even before it's on your tongue. He knows what's coming. He knows what's in your heart. He knows your thoughts. In fact, David says that he hems me in from behind, and before he lays his hand upon me, he says, I don't know exactly what David means by this hemming in. It sounds very physical, but surely it's more than that. It's not just that God stands behind you and stands before you. It's more than that. It's it's on the time-space continuum, if you want to get metaphysical about it. Surely, it's that God knew you in the ages prior to your birth. He, He knew you 
long before you were a twinkle in any human being's eye. He knew you. Behind you. And He's before you in that He knows you way out ahead beyond your death. He, he is far before you on the path of life. He knows exactly where you're going. He knows the thoughts that you'll have 25 years from now. And He knows what you'll be like beyond your deathbed. He's hemmed you in from behind and before. He sees about you what you cannot even imagine for yourself. Now, last week, I made the the point of God's will for us, that that's really a simple matter. We make it much more complex than it needs to be. I know there are all kinds of complexities in life, and we all have unresolved questions about what we ought to do or not do. But God's will for us is really very simple. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, This is God's will for you, that you be sanctified. And that's really it. There are all kinds of decisions that you have to make, and you may make a right decision or a wrong decision, but God's will for you is that you be sanctified, that you change. And we as Christians use all kinds of different terms for this, and they're right and proper terms. We talk in terms of growing in grace or of becoming Christ-like, right? Or of pursuing holiness, or maturing in godliness. Those are all proper ways to talk about what is simply change. God is after your change. He knows you deeply, and He loves you too much to leave you as you are. It means that God's knowledge is not just a threat to your old nature, It's also a refuge for your new nature. God is after your change. I mean, think with me for a moment what that means. You know, what if, what if you have been a consumer of the sex trade? What if that's the case, whether buying a person or buying an image, whatever it is, or just imagining something that you ought not to imagine? What if you've been a consumer of that and you recognize the damage that it's done not just to yourself but to others? What if that? God knows it. What about that? What, what does God do with that for you? What if you've been violated by that same consumption and maybe feel the, the shame and the guilt associated with it and it goes with you for all of your life and it's hard to overcome and to get beyond that. What if that's the case? What if that's in the catalog of things that God knows about you? What does the gospel have for you? What if you've been party to an abortion? Maybe encouraging it or paying for it or even having one. You know, what if that's in the catalog of things that God knows about you? Does that put you beyond the reach of the gospel? Does that put you beyond the pale of redemption, perhaps? What does that have for you? What does the gospel do for you? You know, not only does God know your life, but in Christ, He has loved your life. He is our life-loving God, and He loves your life so much that He has changed you, and He is changing you still. That's His will for you. You know, but before you can really see the the change as it unfolds in this psalm, the thought of God knowing all of these things about you might make you want to flee because our 
life-loving God is present in all of life. He, he is everywhere where you might go. What does David say? Verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence, O Lord? Have you ever walked into a group of people, you know, maybe in the lobby of the theater or, or somewhere else, and, and you realize that they're talking about you? Has that ever happened to you? You know, some of you are so confident and, and uh, optimistic that you would do that, and you would think, oh, how wonderful, they're talking about me. It's so good that they should spend their time in that way. <laughs> Others of us are maybe more realistic about that. And when we stumble into a group of people and realize they're talking about us, you know, we begin to get self-conscious. Why are they talking about me? Do they know something about me that I really ought to have hidden instead. It makes me think of, of one of, of our family's favorite stand-up comedians, Brian Regan. Maybe you've heard him before. He has a little sketch about the fact that he's growing older and he realizes he kind of needs a hearing aid and uh, how the commercials for hearing aid advertise the fact that, you know, when you have a hearing aid, suddenly you can hear what people are saying about you. And the, and the commercial shows... Uh, you know, an older woman walking along the beach with her hearing aid and two younger women are, are watching her walk by and they're whispering, wow, look how beautiful she is in her old age. And his point is, look, whispering wasn't made for compliments. That's not what they're saying. You know, when people are talking about you, you, you probably ought to be sort of self-aware, you know? I mean, you, you want to hide, you want to go away and to escape from it. And that's what David sort of wants to do here. God is not just omniscient. It's not just that he knows everything. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And that seems kind of discomforting to us. You know, David says, if I were to go to heaven, you're there, of course. And if I were to go down to Sheol, to hell, you'd be there too. That's a theological conversation to have with your kids. And if I were to go to the other side of the sea to escape you, well, you'd be there too. And that seems discomforting, but then you get to verse 10. And you recognize that David actually knows his theology. He understands who God is. And so he knows that this is not all that it seems. Because he says, in all of those places, O Lord, your hand shall lead me. Your right hand, that is the strength of God, shall Hold me, even, he says, through the valley of the shadow of death, through the, the darkness to which he alludes to. Still you're there. You see me in my darkness, and you hold me there. You are there with me. David really doesn't want to flee. In fact, he goes on in the next verses, verse 13 and following, to explain that our life-loving God loves life so much as He's created it that He's at work in it from the moment of conception. From the very beginning in the womb, He is there, He says. You've formed my inward parts. But you know our world doesn't recognize this. Our world does not acknowledge this to be true or else we would not have such contradictory realities as this one. Okay, 38 states, as I understand it, in our country have on their laws, on their books, what people call fetal homicide laws. That means that it's a crime to harm or to kill an unborn child. Now, the law states it this way. 
it says that there are, are penalties for one who harms an individual. So the legal terminology, I don't know a whole lot about it, but the legal terminology has to be precise. And so an individual is defined as this. A human being who is alive, you know, give them credit for observing the obvious, right? An individual is a human being who is alive, including an unborn child at every stage of gestation from fertilization until birth. That's on the books of law in the state of Texas as a fetal homicide law that calls it a crime to harm or to kill an unborn child. So, for example, if a pregnant woman was in a car driving or riding along on the way to the grocery store somewhere somewhere, and a reckless driver flew through an intersection running the red light and T-boned the car in which the pregnant woman was riding, causing all kinds of mayhem and wreckage and injuries. And the mother, the pregnant mother, survives the wreck, but her unborn child does not. The person driving the other car would be charged with involuntary manslaughter and face jail time on account of the life of the unborn child. This is on the law books of the state of Texas. But, but, if the same woman were driving pregnant to an abortion clinic and arrived safely, the staff of that clinic could legally terminate the life of that same individual, even according to the definition of law in the state of Texas. Now listen, praise God for fetal homicide laws. Praise God that that an individual is defined as they are on the books of the laws of the state of Texas. But that picture is messed up. I mean, that contradiction is, is beyond description. It doesn't make any sense to anyone who even remotely has any sense at all. And these are the laws. You know, it's messed up because we don't recognize the strength of the presence of Almighty God at every point of life. The psalmist here marvels at God's intricate presence in life from the very beginning, knitting him together in the womb, weaving his parts together in secret. He speaks of in the depths of the earth, poetically, saying in in the darkness of the womb, God has, has been knitting together and weaving together the parts of a child, forming even his days that are yet to come. And as if dreaming... In his own weakness, David regards the thoughts of the Almighty and and how vast are the sum of them. I can't even begin to count them, he says. And then, verse 18, David writes this, I awake and I'm still with you. David's here simply recognizing the comfort that comes when the strong is present with the weak. Now, this past week, the college football playoff championship happened here in the Dallas area, and I can't resist bringing this into any conversation. You know, some of you paid attention to it and watched it. Some of you perhaps didn't. Anybody that paid any attention to it was probably just glad that the Alabama Crimson Tide were not a part of it. I have no really dog in that fight. It doesn't really matter to me so much, but many people were glad for that. Last year they were, and I don't know if you maybe watched that last year. There was during the course of the game at halftime last year, a human interest story coming out of Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And as much as you might not like the Alabama Crimson Tide, this human interest story should appeal to your heart. So the story was like this. 
There's a young man whose name is A.J. Starr. He was born and raised in Alabama, and he's a football fan. When his mother was pregnant with him and approaching the day of his birth, she went into labor and, and went to deliver her precious son into the world. And the umbilical cord wrapped around his neck during the course of delivery. And it tightened enough around his neck for a long enough time, the oxygen was cut off to his brain, causing irreparable damage. He has cerebral palsy. His body just doesn't work right. His hands won't function correctly. His voice stutters deeply. He has a hard time walking and communicating, but he can get along okay. He grew up a sports fan. He, he watched the games, football especially. He became a fan of the Crimson Tide, his home state team. And when he was old enough, he graduated from high school. He managed to gain admittance to the University of Alabama, and he went there to Tuscaloosa for school. And he would go, as an avid fan of the football team, to watch their practices through the, a crack in the gate and just he would stand for hours and watch the football team practice. And some of the team members noticed him over there. One day he was leaving practice when it was over, and he had hobbled out to the bus stop to catch the campus bus to the other side of campus where he needed to go. And he got there just a little bit late. The bus was pulling away, and he was so frustrated it would take him forever to walk across campus, and now he had to wait for the next bus. So he sat down to wait. But then he heard someone call out to him, Hey, do you need a ride? And a car pulled up. It was A.J. McCarron the all-American superstar quarterback with the all-American girlfriend who pulled up and saw him there and said, hey, do you need a ride? A.J. Starr said, sure, and he got in the car and introduced himself. My name is, is A.J., and, and the driver said, well, I'm A.J. McCarron, and, and Starr said, oh, I know who you are. And they drove along talking a bit about football and eventually a bit about cerebral palsy, and when they arrived where they were going and Star was about to get out of the car, he paused and he looked back at McCarron and he said, is there any way that I could be a part of the football team? And McCarron said, you know, I don't know, but I'll check and see what I can do. Two days later, McCarron called Star and said, I've got a job for you. It's not paid. And Star said, it's okay. I don't need any money. I just, I'd like to just be a part of the team. And McCarron said, you can be an, an assistant to the equipment manager. And so Star came and began to work as an assistant. And it's a fascinating human interest story to show how this, this hobbled and feeble, weak young man is doing what he wanted to do to just to be a part of the team. What the coverage of the story doesn't actually say is that Star is black. McCarran is white, of course, and this is something that would never have happened 50 years ago in the state of Alabama. But it's not even an issue in the human interest story. It's not even mentioned as an issue at all, which is, you know, what an amazing sign of great progress. But still, the beauty of this thing is that Starr, in being interviewed for the story, said, you know, my friend A.J. McCarran, he saved me. He saved me. I mean, if you have any doubt that football is a religion in Alabama, here it is. He saved me, he says. Star was alienated and friendless on the campus of this massive university. 
he's flawed and he's weak. He can hardly get along. He can hardly speak to people, and it's awkward when he does. And so, you know, who can easily be a friend of such a one? Well, he's still weak. But when did the rest of those things change for him? They changed when the strong one said, I'm with you. This is what changes David in this psalm. When he recognizes that God is with him, that that God is present in all of his life, from the moment of conception beyond, God is there, and that changes David so that he then sees that God also rules over all of life. In verse 19, David comes down from his theological musings, and he does it really, he lands with a thud. Don't you think? I mean, if you look at verse 19 and see what he says there, you know, he's just said, Lord, you know all of life. You're present in all of life. But when I look around at the world that I see around me, oh, man. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Men of blood, you bloodthirsty ones, depart from me. Go away. And he speaks of hatred and loathing and enemies. I mean, David kind of falls down with a thud here, doesn't he? God's not only omniscient and omnipresent, but he's omnipotent as well. He's all-powerful. He rules even over those who hate him. Does it seem to you that David is out of control? When he gets to verse 19, he just kind of snaps and loses control. And, you know, we kind of want to say, oh, you know, that's just not slaying people and bloodthirsty men and hatred and loathing. Surely, you know. God has got to get his man in order. You know, David, you need to sit in time out for a little while and cool down. I don't think so. I don't think that's the case at all. I think this is an amazing picture of righteous anger. When you know your theology, when you know that God knows you, that God formed you, that God chooses to be with you even in your weakness, that When you see evil and injustice in the world around you, you should get angry. You should. When you see the cruelty of just the evening news, when you recall the stories of Boko Haram in Africa stealing young girls from their families and enslaving hundreds of them for their own purposes, you should get angry. When you hear the stories of the same group of terrorists in Africa slaughtering thousands of children and elderly because they couldn't flee fast enough to get out of their way. You should be angry about that. When you hear a story about a mom who sold her daughter for sex at the Super Bowl in Dallas, you should be angry. And when you don't hear anything about the men who bought that daughter, you should be furious. When you see a movie like Selma, And consider the fact that in 1965, when black Americans were striving and struggling just to get the simple right to vote, that white Christians, oh man, had very little to say about it. That should be at least frustrating. It should be angering to your heart to think of it, because it should not be. And when you think about the fact that this world says that your life is not yet a life, even as God forms it in the womb of your mother, 
That should make you livid. It should make you furious, Christian. It should make you righteously angry. And then it should make you make one request of God. Oh, Lord, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Oh, Lord. You can't enter into righteous anger without self-inspection. It's just kind of a requirement. You know, see, Lord, if there's any grievous or offensive way in me. Might it be the case that our life-loving God is grieved by the fact that we don't get angry at all until inconvenience invades our lives? Might that be? Might that be the grief that we cause to God that He would see should we make this request? You know, the question for any Christian is this. Do you ever get angry? Do you ever get angry for reasons and in ways that would honor the life-loving God that you serve? Look, not just because your kids left their clothes on the floor again. Not just because your work associate bungled the deal. And not just because you lost a million dollars. None of those are reasons to be angry. People, none of them are. Do you ever get angry because the justice of God has been violated? God is all-powerful even over injustice, and He will make it right. He will make it right one day, and when He does, where will you stand? The New Testament reading you heard a while ago was from Matthew 12, and maybe it seemed a little bit out of place. It tells a poignant little story, a little picture of Jesus on the Sabbath, which is the day in which he caused all of his controversy. Don't you know it? On the Sabbath, he goes into, quote, their synagogue, and, quote, they ask him a question. Who are they? They are the Pharisees, the powerful ones, the powerful religious leaders. And the tension is thick in the air, if you listen carefully to the passage there. And they ask him a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They're setting him up. You know, it happens all the time. They're setting him up. Because a man is standing there with a withered hand. The man has cerebral palsy. And he can't function in life. Jesus, tell us. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Hint, hint. And what does the Son of God do? The God of life does not back down. And so, he couldn't not say it. Stretch out your hand, you with cerebral palsy. And his hand was healed, healthy just like the other one. And what did they then do? They went out to conspire how to destroy him. They don't love life. But our life-loving God preserves it. Our life-loving God protects it. We live in a world of death, but we serve a life-loving God. He knows everything about you. He knows everything about you. And there is nothing about you, nothing about you, that causes Him to withdraw His presence. Because of Jesus, there is nothing that you can do to push His presence away. And He does rule over all of life. And one day He will make it right. Your life, because of Christ, has been called precious by Him. 
And so may it be that all of life, including your own, is precious to you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. O Lord, we pray that you would be at work in us and through us. O Lord, enable us to recognize our life-loving God and to turn to you in faith and to serve and trust you even as you have come to us and made yourself to be flesh and blood to walk among us, to accomplish for us exactly what you require so that by faith we might have life. Encourage our hearts, Lord. Encourage our hearts and give us strength. Even as we see and reflect on our own hearts, you know them more deeply, yet, yet you have come and drawn close to us in your gospel. Give us life because of that, we pray, and give us strength in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.